are listening to the Unsung Lung Podcast, presented by Alberta Lung. Yeah, no, I'm going to do it. I, I'm going to do this. Trust me. Come on, Jacob. You can do it. Ah, hype yourself up. Okay. I don't know about you, but I'm feeling 22. Oh, good gracious. Holy moly, that was cringy. <laughs> Anyways, cheers to 22 episodes. That means we've been doing this thing for 22 months. The Unsung Lung Podcast is almost two years old now. Who'd have thunk it? To celebrate 22 episodes, we have a pair of amazing guests on the show today, and we are going to be talking about RSV. I will only be attempting this once, so pay attention and listen clearly. RSV stands for Respiratory Syncytial Virus. I think I'm saying that correctly. And anyways, if you try to say that 10 times fast, I challenge you. And and it can affect anyone from babies up to seniors. More on RSV in a minute. So, as we all know, the Christmas season is fast approaching. What better time to purchase holiday seal cards from Alberta Lung than right now? We have partnered with artists from Chrysalis to create our 2023 holiday cards. All the art was created by Albertans with disabilities, so not only are you helping those with lung disease when you purchase your cards, you're helping those at Chrysalis as well. I had a chance to look at them, and man, do they look so beautiful. So head on over to www.ablung.ca and purchase your cards today. The final day of purchase for Christmas delivery is December 10th, and the final day that Alberta Lung will ship them out for the season is December 15th. Get yours before they're gone. The link to buy the cards should be on the homepage of the of Alberta Lung's website, so it'll be easy to find. Now on to today's show. For our show covering everything RSV, our guests are Dr. Dion Neem and Amit Gupta. Dr. Dion has over 25 years of experience as a pediatrician and assistant clinical professor at McMaster University. He completed postgraduate training in pediatrics and internal medicine at McMaster and Michigan State University. He also pursued a fellowship in primary disease prevention at McMaster. Since 2008, Dr. Dion has worked in the vaccine industry, currently serving as a North American senior medical expert. He focuses on medical strategy for new vaccine targets, early pipeline projects, and collaborations with various organizations. Additionally, Dr. Dion volunteers by coaching, training, and mentoring young athletes to help them gain valuable life lessons from sports. That's honestly so incredible. I grew up playing so many different kinds of sports, soccer, basketball. I even tried my hand at football, which we're not going to talk about that because trauma. But anyways, uh, that, that that's incredible that, that Dr. Dion does that. Amit Gupta currently serves as a medical science liaison for a vaccine company. With a background in pharmacy, he obtained his doctorate of pharmacy from the University of British Columbia. Prior to his current role, Amit led initiatives related to infectious disease, epidemiology, and prevention strategies at the BC Centre for Disease Control. His strong commitment lies in enhancing immunization rates in marginalized communities that bear a disproportionate burden of respiratory virus infections. Today we will be discussing what RSV is and how it affects different age groups, how dangerous RSV can be, and new treatments for RSV that are both groundbreaking and effective. I am so excited to get into the conversation today. Myself and a colleague from Alberta Lung met with Amit and Dr. Dion a few months ago to sort of lay the groundwork for this episode, and they were an absolute delight to talk to, and I know you'll enjoy everything they have to say. So sit back, relax, and learn everything there is to know about RSV.
Well, I am so excited to be sitting down with two experts in RSV. So welcome to the show, Dr. Dion Neem and Amit Gupta. I'll start with you, Dr. Dion. How's it going today? It's going great. Thanks very much for uh, having myself and Amit. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, of course. How's it going for you, Amit? Uh, same. Thanks. <laughs> nice day. And we're excited to chat about RSV. Yeah, exactly. So we 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 had a little chat a while ago, um, just to kind of, as I mentioned in the introduction, lay the groundwork for this episode. And Dr. Dion and Amit were in two opposite sides of the country, and we have the opportunity that we have the opportunity that they're actually together, so we can have kind of a more free flowing conversation, which is really awesome. Um, so I'm excited for this. So, in diving into our first question, and this one is for you, Dr. Dion. Can you explain to our listeners what RSV is and who it can affect? Yeah, absolutely. So RSV is an acronym and it stands for a respiratory syncytial virus. And of course, it's a respiratory virus, hence the respiratory virus part of that. But um, it's actually um, a disease which is characterized by infected respiratory cells, which fuse together to their neighboring cells. And they kind of form this large kind of uh, multi-nucleated cell called syncytia. And that's why the term respiratory uh, syncytial virus. And it's a member of this, I know this is really important, but it's a member of this uh, family called paramyxoviruses. And so the virus is para being in Latin uh, beside and myxo being mucus. So the virus tends to be beside mucus. And it's the mucus that ends up being kind of the problem uh, child in, the, in, this, in this story. Um, I guess I should tell you, RSV tends to have a peak incidence in Canada and uh, in the southern sort of the provinces, it tends to be between uh, Mar November and March. And then if you're up north, it tends to be sort of December uh, through till May. And classically, you know, it's a respiratory virus. So it does what respiratory viruses do. It spreads or transmits by sneezing and by coughing. Those are respiratory droplets. And also it can land, uh, the virus can land on uh, certain um, surfaces, which then you can touch, and then you can actually, uh, if you're touching your nose or, or, or your eyes, you can infect yourself. It is a highly transmittable disease. I will say that to you. Um, it's uh, so in close quarters, uh, daycares, uh, seniors living, schools, um, you know, and 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 you know, long-term cares. It moves around quite quickly. We have a, a, a term R not, and uh, R not means if a person gets RSV, how many people will he or she transfer it to or transmit it to? And it's about four to five. So it moves pretty quick. In daycare, you could probably double that. I mean, I did a, uh, uh, a modeling study on transmission of uh, respiratory infections in the daycare with the University of Guelph, just around the corner from here. And just uh, to sort of summarize, it's like a nuclear bomb going off uh, a virus infection <laughs> in a daycare. <laughs> okay, there you go. Um, so you asked as well, just at the, like who sort of is involved here, who gets infected? Um, well, everybody gets infected. It's just that sort of at the wings of the uh, age spectrum, uh, babies and people over 65 years of age, it really comes down to the fact that they are uh, anatomically small or anatomically different. Babies being small, when you're um, 65 years of age and older, you can have some diseases which can cause that. You tend to be a little bit more physiologically weak as a baby or physiologically weak as a senior. And uh, your immune system's uh, immature in the baby and um, just sort of waning a little bit. Uh, they call it immunosenescence in the seniors, so weakening. And then the people in between those bookends, they tend to be people who have uh, just underlying chronic conditions, particularly respiratory, like asthma or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or sometimes uh, muscular conditions like muscular dystrophy. Those would be people that you would see it in. But everybody gets it, uh, and pretty much every year they get it. It's just that um, the people that we see with more severe diseases tend to be the babies uh, from their day of birth to about one, their first birthday, and then the seniors over 65 years of age, and then everybody in between sort of people that have chronic conditions. So I hope that helps. Is there any? Yeah, definitely. No, definitely. I'm just so uh, one thing I took out of that is you mentioned that the mucus is the problem child. Could this could RSV be compared to and I know it, it's a stretch, but I'm thinking could it be compared to cystic fibrosis in terms of not being able to clear mucus from the lungs? And obviously, RSV isn't genetic. It's it's a transmittable disease. But is, is it close to that? 
As a matter of fact, it is. It's just that uh, with cystic fibrosis, of course, the mucus production is always going to be there, and that's going to be a chronic condition. That's going to be chronic problems. But you know, that's a very that's a very wise statement. So it just would be RSV. It's only at the time of infection. So that would be that sort of that week when you're infectious, and then sort of after that week, um, you sort of you have to clean out your lungs. Uh, so there'll be still continued coughing, uh, but it won't necessarily be infectious coughing. So no, that is a good analogy, actually, uh, from a chronic condition which produces too much mucus to a, um, a, a acute condition where you have a virus which produces too much mucus. So uh, yeah, well put. Perfect. Very interesting. So we'll move on to Ahmet now, and he has uh, a background in pharmacy. So we're getting doctor and pharmacy physician, pharmacist, a little bit different different uh, aspects today. So I'm wondering if you could tell us the history of vaccines and RSV. So was there, or why was there a pause in furthering RSV research? I can't remember when this was in the 90s or, remember, or whenever it is. And I, we also touched on maybe vaccine isn't even the right term nowadays, it's humanization, but I'll let you, uh, I'll let you talk about that. Yeah, I love this question, right? And it's kind of a neat story. So we all know vaccines as this tried and tested way for preventing important infections in babies all the way up to older adults, right? I mean, everybody knows about flu shots. We know that kids get many routine pediatric vaccines. Vaccines are a well-understood concept. But in the case of RSV, scientists have been working on vaccines for this virus since the virus was initially discovered in 1956. I mean, since that initial discovery, there was urgency to do something about this virus, which disproportionately affects the most vulnerable. However, there have been dozens and dozens of failed attempts that have halted progress for many, many years. So I think the failures of those traditional vaccines were, were driven in part by two main issues. So first, as Dr. Neen has said, I mean, RSV is a virus that has the potential of causing severe disease across that first year of life. However, the first two months of life are a really critical period where that risk of severe disease is disproportionately higher. So for this reason, protection in the first two months of life is essential. But the problem with conventional vaccines is that they don't work very well in those first two months of life we don't actually offer kids routine immunizations or routine pediatric vaccines until they're about two months of age, not because they're unsafe at a younger age, simply because they're ineffective at younger ages. So if we want to prevent disease in those first two months of life, a vaccine really isn't the most favorable way of doing that. The other reason though, and this is kind of a neat story that's specific to RSV, is that there were actually clinical trials that looked at using vaccines in babies in the 1960s. So 1960s being almost 70 years ago. I mean, those vaccine candidates that were tested though, they paradoxically resulted in an increased risk of severe disease, resulting in some serious adverse outcomes in those infants that were enrolled in those clinical trials back in the 60s. So, that really scared science from wanting to pursue a conventional vaccine for babies in this for this disease state. Um, and the prevention landscape for RSV had to get creative to find new new ways of preventing this disease. Perfect. Yeah, and and we'll get into passive immunization later. Um, but I, I remember you you taught you telling us a story um, back when we met earlier with uh, my colleague from Alberta Long that there was a pause in research. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, was that was that just because it was so diff like traditional vaccines weren't working? What, what what caused that pause? Yeah, I mean it's a combination of things really. So it's it, it's it's one because they weren't they weren't effective, right? So they weren't showing that de- that 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 reduction in severe disease, particularly in those first two months of life. The other reason, though, was that safety safety reason. So when we tried those vaccines in those infants, not only were they really ineffective at reducing severe disease, they were increasing the risk of severe disease in those in those in those babies. Um, and mind you, those trials were done in 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 many marginalized populations back then. We didn't have as much of a rigorous standard for clinical trials in the 1960s as we do now. So um, the impact of those trials on those marginalized communities that were that were in those trials back in the day was was significant and it really forced science to take a pause and reconsider how we approach this virus 
definitely yeah uh, it, it, it's it's kind of terrifying to think of what we could do back in the days i think to like the uh syphilis program with the tuskegee yes. tuskegee right yes. um yeah and 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 just things i'm so glad that that programs have come a far way and healthcare has come a, a, a long way since then so you mentioned infants a lot and rsv has to uh specifically target well not specifically targets of course it doesn't but it's it's more harmful for in- infants and children so we'll go back to dr dion for these new questions and we'll specifically keep talking about children and babies uh so why are infants so susceptible to severe disease and particularly rsv what what makes them uh i guess what makes the, the disease more dangerous for for this age group yeah absolutely and i might just change the the term or define the term infants because uh, that's sort of a medical term, which is fu- which is fine. This is we're doing a medical podcast here, but but it's babies, and it's babies from their date of birth or day of birth to their first birthday, and uh, that's important because when I explain to you about babies and sort of the disease of RSV in babies, um, you know you'll sort of understand why because you you know what a baby is. I mean they're anatomically small. They're physiologically weak, and uh, just to throw it in there, they're they're immunologically sort of underdeveloped. And so when you're looking at why RSV really causes problems in those guys, it's really because the smallness is um, reflecting on the lungs. The lungs are very small, and their air airways are very narrow. And then when you get into trouble with a virus that likes to produce a lot of uh, mucus, it tends to uh, block the uh, airways, and therefore you have to breathe harder in order to uh, get oxygen in uh, from the outside into your what they call the areola, which is the uh, interface of oxygen and carbon dioxide exchange. So then you got to breathe harder, but you have weak respiratory muscles because you're physiologically weak and you've got limited energy reserves. So you get tired and faster, you easily fatigue. Um, And of course, the immunological underdevelopment uh, sort of means that it takes a long time. There's almost almost sort of like it's your immune system's immature, so it's learning on its first RSV. Well, it'll take about a week to learn. So in other words, you've got to deal with this thing for about a week and you can run yourselves into some troubles innately with the virus or also the secondary bacterial infections. Um, But I I will just say sort of a little bit about it. Like um, it's so easy to clog a small airway with RSV involved. one of which is that when the infection falls down into your lungs, it will create uh, the, the actual smallest airways, the bronchioles. It will get them to come become sort of edematous. What it means is that swelling, that there's, there's fluids that are bringing in the sort of infection-fighting cells drive into the wall of the airway. And then, of course, there's the mucus. Well, where are they going to go? Well, they're going to go to the path of least resistance, which, of course, is the lumen the airway. And then so that's the easily clogging of the airway. The other thing that occurs is that when the respiratory cells are infected in these bronchioles, these small little airways, um, our immune system fights them and kills them and they slough off. So you've got this mucus, you've got these cells sloughing off. The next thing you know, you've got a plug in your airway. Um, And and that that, that really is at the end of the day why babies uh, tend to have quite a bit of difficulty uh, with this specific virus, RSV. So just in summary, because boy, I talk a lot. <laughs> so seven days, because they're immunologically immune uh, or immature. So it takes a while for the, the virus to get killed and move away. Um, and they're anatomically small, so it's really easy for them, their airways to get clogged. And then when they have to overbreathe in order to get the oxygen into their lungs, um, they're just have weak muscles and they are, their energy stores are very, uh, very small. So they end up fatiguing quickly and going in from a mild respiratory sort of distress to a moderate respiratory distress to a severe respiratory distress where their respiratory muscles become exhausted, they're not breathing, so they're in respiratory failure. And of course, you can imagine uh, that's not very good. Yeah, that that was going to be kind of an ad lib question. I don't know if we spoke about this earlier uh, when we met last, but what, what is the most typical outcome for for a baby that gets uh rsv is it obviously it's not death because we'd hear about that like death can happen so w- what are the different is is respiratory failure what i guess my question is what happens like what what how often does death occur how often does severe reaction occur what what does that look like in in babies 
Okay, so yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll back up a little bit. So because RSV uh, does a lot, it, it's involving the entire respiratory system from nose to the bottom of your lungs. And so you have, we divide that into upper respiratory tract infection and lower respiratory tract, basically by your vocal cords. So nose to vocal cords and the vocal cords down to the bottom of your lungs. So in the upper respiratory tract infection, most people get a stuffy nose, sore throat, maybe a little tickle, cough, and don't care. But in babies, and I always tell parents this, um, in babies, a respiratory infection is, is much more challenging. And again, it comes down to anatomically small and physiologically weak. And so when you have an upper respiratory tract infection in, in a baby and the nose is plugged, first of all, uh, they can't breathe that well, so they get a bit irritable. But can you imagine breastfeeding or bottle feeding when you've got a stuffy nose? Because now you've blocked the nose, you've blocked the mouth, and it's difficult to feed. And so if you can't uh, feed, then of course you become more irritable. And if you can't, if you're irritable, you can't sleep. And so I see a lot of uh, moms and dads in there with their babies because of those reasons. They just aren't feeding very well. They're concerned about that. They're not sleeping and they're irritable and crying all the time. So, and, and you know, and they come in just to, to, to figure out, you know, what's going on. Um, the problem is, is that uh, everybody who gets RSV will basically get an upper respiratory tract infection, but about 15 to 30% of those can fall below the vocal cords, they can fall into your lungs. Um, it's actually kind of an interesting way. It's just, it's actually the, the infected cells in the upper respiratory tract, they actually aspirate them uh, into their lower lungs, but that's bringing the virus in. So then the virus proliferates down there. And I kind of, you know, sort of talk to you about what happens in the airways, but from what we see, uh, we're going to see a baby that's going to have a little bit more uh, difficulty with the breathing. And uh, once again, um, you know, you talk working your way through that, um, if you're getting into this mild respiratory stress where you're breathing fast and you're using your muscles of accessory muscles just a little bit, the muscles in your neck, you can see your sort of your ribs moving and your diaphragms going down. That, that's okay. The kids can kind of handle that. But when you start getting into moderate uh, or severe, which is, you know, they're really huffing and puffing, you know that they're going to get into some trouble. Now, those are the babies that end up going to the emergency room and potentially even getting admitted to hospital. Now, you mentioned about death. Well, we don't see, certainly in the southern parts of Canada, really death with RSV, but that's because we're intervening. You know, that's because we've got medical care that's accessible and you're intervening. Now, if you get up to the northern uh, parts of this country, sometimes that can be much more challenging. Uh, it is a little bit of a race against time when you're dealing with a baby who's struggling to breathe because again they're getting tired and they're losing their energy resources so if if they do stop breathing and you don't have someone that can intervene um then you know that could that can cause that but the numbers are very slow very low sorry in uh in in canada in developing nations they're high like you're talking like 50 to sixty thousand deaths per year uh, worldwide due to rsv um but i you know i think that that kind of uh you know, gives you an idea. Let me give some numbers that might uh, be helpful. So if if you look at all children that are two years of age, at least 90% of them, it's like zero, like birth to two years of age, 90% of them will get RSV at least once. And about one in five of those will go to the doctor because of trouble with the upper respiratory tract infection or more with the lower respiratory tract infection. Uh, and with the lower respiratory tract infection, if it gets to a place where they're struggling to breathe, uh, one in 50 uh, of those babies will end up in the hospital. Now, here's the sort of thing. Um, been dealing with this for over 25 years. You know, there's no treatment for RSV, right? There's, they've tried things. They've tried, uh, respiratory medicines like uh, salbutamol, which opens up the airways. They've tried reducing mucus uh, medications like budesonide or fluticasone. Uh, they actually even tried using like sort of steamed or nebulized normal saline. Uh, it's a virus, so they've tried antivirals. Neither of those worked. So really what we do is we support the kids through, the babies through the difficulties with their breathing. We give them oxygen in different modalities to give them oxygen to, you know, intubation, mechanical ventilation, so in the ICU, or we give them fluids in the different modalities to that could be intravenous, peripheral line or, or central line. And we support them through it until their immune system can curtail that RSV virus. And then, you know, that's good news and we can, we can send them on their way and, 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 and send them home. So I'll leave it at that. That was a lot again. No, perfect. Yeah, that, that that's a really great explanation of what sort of happens when a baby gets RSV. So in a similar category, we're going to stick with you, Dr. Dion, maybe raising the age level a little bit, six-year-olds, 12-year-olds. 
what happens when a child gets RSV? Is is the danger still at the same level as babies? And if it's not, why why does that kind of curtail? Is it just because your immune system gets better as you age? Yeah, absolutely. It's all those three things again. You're bigger and stronger. You're yeah, so you're not as anatomically small. You're not as physiologically weak, and your immune system is better. Yeah, hundred percent. But the, 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 the problems still are there, they're just different. So when you get a respiratory infection um, and you're bigger, it does still create a lot of mucus and disrupt your anatomy. So for example, if you have a stuffy nose, you're going to also block uh, something called eustachian tube, which connects your middle ear. So almost everything drops into the nose. Eh? So middle ear through the eustachian tube and goes into the nose. But if that's blocked, then you build up fluid there and bacteria love fluid, so you're susceptible to getting um, otitis media, ear infections, middle ear infections. And the same sort of premise can occur um, in your lungs as well, too. So if you actually have a lot of mucus in the area, um, bacteria look at that. They oh, I like that. That's a nice place to grow. And next thing you know, you've got a bacterial pneumonia. So and then and then so again, antibiotics for both both bacterial infections, whether it be acute otitis media, ear infection, or whether it be bacterial pneumonia. Um, so, so those are things that occur, and 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 then and then I know uh, you want to jump in on this one, but excessive, you know, a use of antibiotics starts to occur. I mean, um, a lot of times in the lungs, you know, you, you, it's it's frightening with babies, and they might be in trouble to breathe. So, um, with the RSV, we you know we don't really have much of a choice. You know, we, we you know we've got them, we're trying to do the oxygen, get the fluid. Sometimes you have to give them antibiotics as well too. You know, whether you're hundred percent sure whether it's a bacterial infection or not, because you just you just can't have, take the chance of them tipping over. So, but those are issues. We'd, we'd much rather uh, if they're in the emergency room, we can get an X-ray and we can define it. But but you know, it's it's a, it's a challenge. Just put it that way, it's a challenge. Now, when you look at long term, I mean, there's an association with uh, children, particularly who get admitted to hospital because of RSV. Um, they tend to, if you watch them and follow them, they tend to sort of come to the family physician or the urgent care, the uh, emergency rooms with um, recurrent wheezing or a reactive airways disease, or if that's over years, it's asthma. And so we're not sure what comes first, the chicken or the egg, but what we do know is that, you know, if you have RSV, you tend to have long-term problems uh, with reactive airways disease. So reactive airways disease, I love the term, you're overreacting in your airways to a disease, to, which in this case is a respiratory uh, virus. Um, and with that, you know, your body's gonna say, okay, I gotta shut down my airways so make sure the virus doesn't come in. So we have to use medicine to open up the airways, ventilum. And then we have too much uh, mucus. Um, so we, we have a coughing, so we can give them uh, inhaled steroids to get rid of that. The problem is, is that this, this goes on, you know, so it's almost not just RSV, RSV might've been the cause of that, but every virus that comes in there, next thing you're using your salbutamol, they inhale fluticasone or uh, inhale steroids, sometimes they're oral steroids. Um, you know, it, it just, it, it just becomes quite problematic every single time. So we see them a lot. So I was in the clinic yesterday and I saw, oh, I don't know, about uh, 38 people. And I would say uh, 10 of those were asthmatics because it's RSV season here in Ontario. Perfect. I want to get yeah. my, my skin in the game on that too. I mean, that when, as soon as you brought up antibiotics, oh my goodness, viral infections are such a huge cause of antibiotic prescriptions in this country. Um, and for, for a large part, it's because it's very hard to distinguish between viral infections and bacterial infections. And especially when you're looking at a baby, I mean, you don't want to take that chance. But but we but, but oftentimes we think that it's harmless to use antibiotics in this population. And the truth of the matter is that that simply isn't the case. I mean, there's fabulous data out of British Columbia and some data out of Alberta as well that has found this really neat association between kids that get antibiotics in the first year of life and then their ongoing risk of developing things like asthma, uh, atopic dermatitis, which is um, kind of like eczema, and allergic rhinitis, which is kind of like seasonal allergies. So we know that there's this really close association between antibiotic exposure in that first year of life and developing these, these long-term consequences later on. So by preventing that antibiotic use in the first place, we have an opportunity to potentially prevent these longer-term complications. Perfect. That's super interesting. Yeah, it, it, I think we always look for that in... in you want to fix something right now, but what are the long-term implications going to be? And that's really scary sometimes. So thank you both for answering that question about kind of early life in RSV. So we'll switch back to Amit for these next few questions. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering, what are the options to prevent infection and reduce the harmful side effects of RSV? 
Yeah. I, it's a really exciting time for RSE right now because there's so many neat things that are coming to market in Canada. So really for 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 babies, there's two options that are coming for preventing RSV. Um, so first, the first involves the use of something called a monoclonal antibody injection. And that would be given to the infant at the beginning of the RSV season to prevent disease across that first year of life. So you might be scratching your head at this point, wondering what the heck is a monoclonal antibody? And well, I don't blame you because it's not something that we do routinely, but we're talking about changing that. So. A monoclonal antibody is a preformed antibody that mimics the body's natural immune process, but instead of providing a vaccine where that individual would be producing their own antibodies against the virus, a monoclonal antibody is basically a cheat code to passively confer those antibodies without requiring any independent immune activation in that baby. So this is an approach that is Health Canada approved. It, it was the products were approved in April of this year, um, and, and, and we're really excited to see where these go in Canada. Um, the other option that's currently being evaluated by regulators is the use of a traditional RSV vaccine, so active immunization, but in pregnancy. So in immunizing a pregnant woman to allow the mom to produce their own antibodies using her mature immune system, and then transferring those antibodies transplacentally during the third trimester of pregnancy. So this is an approach that, that, that that's quite interesting and it's been historically used for things like influenza vaccines, COVID vaccines, and even the pertussis vaccines. So it's neat to see this approach being um, considered for RSV as well. Uh, in adults, um, we're able to use traditional vaccines because they have mature immune systems that can that can produce an antibody response against against the antigen that's converted in that vaccine. So in that over sixty population as well, there is there are uh, conventional vaccines that are available uh, in Canada for use. Perfect. Uh, so in looking back, I believe it's the monochromal um, option. So I'm going to combine these next two questions so you can just have adder, but that's what passive immunization is, the monochromal thing. So my questions, just to get them out there, are what is passive immunization and how is it different from other options, like you mentioned, the active? And then also, why did it take us so long to adopt a passive immunization strategy for RSV? Yeah, I think these are really great questions because these are things that we don't talk about in medicine very often because historically we just haven't been doing this very often. Uh, passive immunization is the process where individuals receive antibodies from another source rather than producing the antibodies on their own. So passive immunization is a shortcut to provide antibodies against a virus, against a bacterium, against whatever you want, but providing those antibodies directly to the baby without requiring the baby to produce those antibodies on their own. Passive immunization does not rely on the baby's immune system to create the antibody. It is the opposite of active immunization. So an example of active immunization, on the other hand, is the use of a conventional vaccine. So the flu shot, for example, is a great example of active immunization, where we provide a small inactivated part of the flu uh, the flu virus, and we'll inject that into the individual, the individual's own immune system will register and produce antibodies against influenza. That is active immunization in contrast to directly providing the antibody to the baby, which would be passive immunization. Uh, so that nuance there is kind of the key difference. Why did it take us so long to adopt passive immunization strategies for RSV? I mean, I love this question because I don't have a perfect answer. I mean, it's kind of a little bit of a no-brainer because we talked about how it's really important to get those babies in those first two months of life. And this is realistically the only way that you can do that. Um, I think a big part of why adopting a passive immunization strategy has taken so long is driven by the sheer limitations of technology that has existed to produce this type of a product. I mean, in the 70 odd years that RSV has been known, technology has advanced a lot for preventing diseases. And I mean, the use of a monoclonal antibody technology is just one example of this, but medicine has changed a lot in the last 70 years. Um, and passive immunization is really just a byproduct of that. 
Perfect. Yeah, that's that, that's a great explanation. And I think obviously technology will continue to evolve. So that maybe there'll be a different kind of vaccine or immunization that we'll use in RSV one day that'll be somehow even more effective. So <laughs> in, in throwing it back to Dr. Dion, I think we got you just on where you're on the chronological question spectrum yeah. today. Um, on the, you, you answered our questions earlier about babies and children and what happens with RSV. So on the flip side, what happens when a senior gets RSV? Yeah, sure. Um, so it's actually quite similar to uh, what happens when you get other respiratory infections when you're a senior, like influenza, for example. Um, you know, we used to think that uh, infectious diseases like RSV, influenza, COVID, I don't know, strep pneumonia, we used to think that they were sitting on this island unto themselves, kind of just hanging out doing the thing. And then we used to think that chronic diseases were on another island and they were sort of sitting out there unto themselves doing their own thing. But what we've realized actually is these two islands, the infectious disease island and the chronic disease island, they're actually connected by a bridge and it's that bridge is like a highway and that's known as the immune system. So when you have situations like um, virus infections, like respiratory syncytial virus or influenza, what they do, or COVID, what they do is they sort of are the flicking the first domino and having a cascading effect. So you certainly with RSV get the RSV symptoms, but the innate immunity to fight that uh, RSV infection is also lit up. And, um, and so is the adaptive immunity and they can be problems. Let's just break it into, in regard to after the respiratory infection, what could be the complications? But what could be the complication after RSV invades into the upper respiratory and particularly the lower respiratory tract infection? Well, the direct effects can be very simple. It can be exacerbation of underlying disease, could be asthma, could be chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, could be cystic fibrosis, as you mentioned. And those exacerbations can be quite can be quite dangerous. Um, certainly, again, just like with the babies, you can get sinus infections or ear infections, but and, and in the lungs, you can get bacterial pneumonia. And those in itself are big problems. With seniors, they, their immune system's not working as well as it used to. So when you get a bacterial pneumonia, you can also get seeding of that bacteria into the blood. Then you get into the septicemias, uh, which have a, a 20 to 40% uh, death. Uh, death. So, that, so you can see it's not particularly good, even just from the respiratory perspective. But when you look at the non-respiratory, sort of the indirect effects uh, of other um, organ systems, um, there's two things that tend to happen. So this is after the respiratory infection. This usually ends up being in the week after the respiratory infection, in this case, respiratory syncytial virus. You can trigger or you can exacerbate underlying chronic disease. Now, triggering is an interesting thing. I talked about the sort of the generalized or innate immune system. It gets elevated by the RSV, it's looking for RSV, grabs the RSV, kind of starts killing RSV, that's good news. But it also starts, because it's generalized, it's looking for other things. And sometimes it can find atherosclerotic plaques, which should be in any vessel in the bloodstream. Um, if that um, atherosclerotic plaque happens to be in the heart or in the lungs, the innate immune system goes, breaks down that atherosclerotic plaque in that blood vessel that creates a bleed. The body says, oh, there's a bleed, I better start my cascading coagulation system, so I create a clot. Only problem is, is that clot fills the, um, fills the blood vessel, then you can't get blood from point after the clot or distal to the clot. That's in the heart, that's a heart attack. If that's in the brain, that's a stroke. Now, the pressures that these types of respiratory infections, in this case, RSV, but it can be influenza or COVID, they actually put a lot of pressure on other sort of chronic diseases that may have kidney disease, um, diabetes particularly, uh, and, and, and they can send them sort of out of whack, even if they're in good sort of homeostasis or under good control through medications or whatnot, th those types of infections, particularly RSV and influenza, they can really knock that off. And you're particularly with diabetes, your blood sugars go up, your blood sugars can go down, um, all kinds of different things. So, so really at the end, what we're saying here with seniors is that innately the virus can be, you know, a respiratory infection quite annoying, but it can also have complications directly on the lungs uh, and then indirectly on other organ systems. And so it, it, in the end, the, the people can get quite sick. Now, when seniors get sick, they go to the hospital and if they lay down for long periods of time, um, which is fairly normal if you're quite sick, seven to 10 days in the hospital, you have a tremendous atrophy of your muscle tissue because you're just not used to it. And uh, then, you know, when you, have, when, you, know, when, you, when you sort of walk in 
and then you lay down for 10 days, it's hard to get to walk out. And you have a, you, you lose a lot of muscular strength. You become a little bit more disabled. We do see people um, who are more on the frail end of the spectrum who can have an RSV infection, can have maybe a mild heart attack uh, or a bacterial pneumonia septicemia, and then they lose their dependence. So they were, or lose, they're not, so they lose their dependence. So they, were, they were independent for the RSV infection, and then after they have to go to a senior's living home or something. Like that. So it's fairly dramatic in, uh, in, in, a, in a senior, just as it is fairly dramatic in a baby. Got it. Yeah, that's super interesting. It, it's funny, I didn't even mention to my parents that I was doing a show on RSV, but a couple of weeks ago, uh, they mentioned that they wanted to get the RSV virus and they were humming and hawing and they didn't know what the benefits were. Um, and my dad actually had sarcoidosis. Um, it doesn't really affect him as much nowadays, but uh, it, as you mentioned, it can affect other underlying diseases. So it probably is a good idea for him to get it. And and uh, in addition to the fact that they're my parents are both over 60. So I think I'm going to push them a little bit to, to go into the clinic and get their shots. But um, we're, we're going to end the, the, the conversation with last two questions. And this one, I'll, I'll start with... Uh, Dr. Dion, uh, for kind of a, a wrap on newborns and babies and why um, it's so why new forms of immunization are so important. So, on a similar vein of preventing infection, why why can't normal va- normal vaccines work to prevent RSV in the newborns? I guess we've we've spoken about this a lot today, but what's the what's the scientific reasoning? Right, and I seem to always be coming back to the same three things. Uh, babies, you know, after like medical school and four years of pediatrics and two years of a fellowship, I come down to babies anatomically small, physiologically weak, and immunologically underdeveloped. And it's really the immunologically underdeveloped. And and I, I mean, Ahmed mentioned a couple things uh, in in his talking. One of which is that technology has changed dramatically. We just didn't have the ability, you know, 20 years ago to really be looking at a you know kind of a long term monoclonal antibody that we would consider to be an immunization. Just didn't have the technology. This is very new. And it really has to do with the fact that um, you can evade the breakdown of the monoclonal antibody. It usually occurs in 28 days, and you can get it out now to six, seven months. So that allows you to to give it as more of an an immunization, sort of like a vaccine, not a vaccine, but an immunization to protect against RSV. So that's sort of the first thing. And then the the other thing is is that your immune system is like a muscle. You got to work it out to make it stronger. And, And babies haven't worked it out yet. And so they are immunologically underdeveloped. And so what will happen with with them is that they simply, with a vaccine, will not produce an immunological response, which will be robust enough uh, to provide protection. I mean, even with the normal, up until about two months of age, so even with the normal vaccines, which they give at two months of age, the first shot is really a primer. And then the second shot is when you sort of have um, immunity. And the thing is, then you need in many of the baby vaccines, you need a third shot, so two months, four months, six months, in order to get you through to uh, the next shot, which is about 18 months. Um, and then you get a shot then, and then our immunization vaccine then, and then you have to do it at five years of age, and then you have to do it every 10 years after. So it just gives you an idea. Like The immune systems just aren't ready for it. Now, this is really interesting when you're talking about pertussis, because RSV and pertussis are both worse at first month, second month, third month, fourth month of life. And so it makes you wonder, should we be reevaluating the way that we immunize our kids? We use vaccines because that's what they were there. We could use them. We've used them for 100 years. They've been working well for 100 years. But now that we've got new technology, if we do want to protect a baby, three day, uh, day three, we give them the uh, uh, monoclonal antibody, the passive immunization. Within several days, they will have an up and running immune system because we just gave them antibodies. They are now protected right there and then. Should we be doing it with RSV? 100%. Should we be doing it with pertussis? Should we be looking at changing our immunization strategy to from a vaccine to a monoclonal antibody? Probably should. But these are the changes that technology has allowed us uh, uh, to do. And and it, and there may be well you know well on our way to many other. Uh, different infant vaccines, which we may have to reconsider how we're going to do them. And that's something that happens to vaccines all the time, though. You know, we're, we're always looking to be better at the vaccines. We don't stand still on something. The only vaccines that have really stood the test of time are two of them, which is the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine, and then the toxoid vaccines, diphtheria, and tetanus. But hey, you never know. 
you know, research and development's going all the time. But this certainly from an infant strategy, uh, immunization strategy, looks like the next thing, which is monoclonal antibodies. Super interesting. Yeah, it almost comes down to when, when we're switching technologies, we almost it, it comes down to a healthcare ethics question. What are the pros and cons of the last one versus what are the pros and cons of this one? So uh, in, in wrapping up our conversations with formal questions, I should say, uh, this one's for you, Amit. Who should be getting this new RSV immunization? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the million dollar question, right? So in Canada, immunization recommendations come from a group called NASI, so the National Advisory Committee on Immunizations. Uh, this group is still deliberating how to deal with all these new products with formal recommendations coming sometime next year. The monoclonal antibody, though, has already been approved by Health Canada for routine use in all babies in the first year of life. Uh, In the United States, recommendations are already available where they do recommend that all infants under eight months of age should receive a monoclonal antibody injection for RSV, where a small number of high-risk babies could also be considered for an injection in the second year of life to provide coverage for a longer duration of time. But that second year in doses is really for a niche population that's considered quite high risk. In the United States, there are also recommendations uh, for pregnant women. So the recommendation is that pregnant women who are between 32 and 36 weeks along uh, should receive an RSV maternal vaccine during pregnancy. Uh, The vaccine is recommended for seasonal administration during September through January, which constitutes RSV season. But still, the U.S. guidelines do make it clear that most infants will probably not need both products. So as always, it's important to talk to your preferred healthcare provider, be it your doctor, your pharmacist, your midwife, whoever you work with, to figure out which product is best for you. Uh, That's on the pediatric side. Um, In the adult side, similarly, NASI is still deliberating on on, how who and when and why we should give the vaccine to older adults. However, uh, similarly to the monoclonal antibody, uh, the older adult product is approved by Health Canada in individuals over 60 years of age. Perfect. Amazing. So I can tell my parents to get their butts down to the pharmacy or wherever (laughs) you get vaccines nowadays and just get it done. Awesome. So but before we wrap it up, I'm just wondering if there's anything either of you want to touch on that we didn't get to today. I don't want to put you on the spot, but any last minute comments? If, if there's nothing, that's totally okay. I think all I want to say, this is a really exciting time for RSV, right? Like on, on average, we've for the last I don't know, 78 years, we've understood that this is a virus that is important in our healthcare system, but we've had nothing to be able to do about it. And the concept of taking 70 years to figure out a vaccine for a virus is actually not that common. On average, I mean, most vaccines are developed fairly af- fairly quickly after the virus is understood and, and, and understood as a problem. RSV is this special virus that has been so difficult to develop a product for um, that we're in a really exciting time for this virus. Awesome. Anything from any closing remarks from you, Dr. Dion? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, I'll just uh, talk a little bit about uh, outside of the baby. You know, we we, we have focus on the baby. That's really important. But uh, as you as you know, uh, babies all come with their personal support system uh, known as parents or grandparents or nannies. Um, and so particularly the parents, I mean, when your baby becomes sick and as sick as you will get with RSV, you are impacted. Uh, you are up all night with that baby who's coughing and struggling to breathe. Um, you are in the hospital, in the ER with them, in the hospitals with them. Um, you know, sometimes I get to a situation where I see people, especially if they've got two uh, kids where their one child from daycare has had it for a week and then has nicely shared it with his little brother or sister, and then they've got it for a week, and the, and the parents come in. I've seen them probably once or twice. Eventually, when they come in on about the, the third week of all this, I'm looking at them going, I wonder who the patient is here. Is it the baby or is it the parents? Because the parents are gassed. And it's just really, really hard. Um, emotionally, I have had a number of uh, moms that just break down in tears. Uh, the one I remember was the last winter on... Christmas Eve, um, the, the toddler and the, the baby were both sort of struggling to breathe. It was actually the baby that was struggling the most off to the emergency room. Um, then during the six-hour stay while they were in the emergency room, the toddler started to struggle to breathe. Both babies, uh, the brother and sister, were admitted to hospital. Of course, mom has to stay with them. Um, she, it was 
three three days in the hospital. They were supposed to have Christmas uh, that the next day. Um, exhausted, stressed. As a physician, you know you're seeing people like that, and uh, you know you don't kind of volunteer this the whole time. But there is no treatment. So what we're doing is supportive care, oxygen, fluids. Fingers crossed. And we just hope everything goes right. We just don't want to be dropping into the ICU. If we have to go to the ICU, okay. Intubation, mechanical ventilation, you know, intravenous fluids. I mean, it's not great. Most of the babies do fairly well. You mentioned, and I just bring a personal story. Uh, you mentioned about death. Now, death does not happen very often. But, but you know, uh, I've got a great friend uh, who I met back in grade five. We've grown up together. Um, he adopted a son and, 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 and just, you know, he had some troubles. He was, had some muscular issues. He got RSV at 18 months. And I can still remember giving uh, my great friend a call and um, telling him, you, you know, you got to come in now because his son was dying in the ICU. So, and he did pass on and we were, you know, we were having, uh, you know, spent some time up north together last, because I still see these folks all the time, uh, spent some time together up north um, just uh sharing stories and just being great friends and he and, and he and he still talks about it and uh that was um that was uh, 22 years ago so yeah that that's an incredible story and and i'm really grateful that you mentioned that the the social aspect we've spent all day all day the last 45 minutes talking about the scientific aspects of rsv but we forget that there's a massive social aspect to healthcare that that really can affect everyone from and, and not specifically the person that's has the disease the people the, their caregivers so it, it it's incredibly important to remember that well okay uh, uh, that that's an amazing note to end on so that will do up for our conversation today on rsv i'd i'd like to thank both of you dr dion and amit for coming on our show today and discussing a topic that is actually new to me i haven't really spoken about it that often so you'd think that a person who talks about lung health on a monthly podcast would have the bases covered by now but i actually don't <laughs> perfect that's okay that's okay it's it's surprising how people i've never heard any uh, buddy really talk about RSV until uh, last year when it started to hit the news of the tri tridemic with COVID and flu um, and the RSV and and so it, it's people are now starting to understand it so don't feel that you're uh, left out or cold. <laughs> yeah most people don't know what it is and, and and now it's just thanks to the media actually people are starting to understand that there's a virus out there it's quite dangerous and the beauty of it is is Ahmed's talked about the whole time that we've got a solution we've got a solution now yeah, exactly. That that's that's all that matters is that we talk about it. So that that's how you get the news out there, and that's what this platform is for. It's getting it's getting new, well, not new, not lung diseases that aren't talked about enough out on the airwaves. So perfect. And with that, I'll just send us right through to our outro. That was such an amazing show with Dr. Dion and Amit. I loved how for the majority of the show we got an in-depth scientific knowledge and expertise from our two guests but at the end we got that social component and aspect of healthcare from dr dion and the story he told about his friend who lost a child to rsv it goes to show that even when healthcare can seem like such a scientific discipline there are people on both sides of the coin practitioners and patients who are human beings there's also the charitable side like all of us at alberta lung who strive to make healthcare accessible for all and spread knowledge on the dangers of various diseases. Before we end our show, I'll do as I always do and send you off with my final three concluding thoughts from the interview. The first is about how contagious RSV actually is and how Dr. Dion described what they call the r not number, which is how many people are infected by one person who contracts RSV. That number is four to five, and for children in daycare settings, it's actually double. He described it as a nuclear bomb of infection going off when RSV hits daycares, which is just kind of wild to think about. So we have to remember, it, 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 it almost feels like it's lost to us, COVID. It, it feels, well, maybe not lost to us. We kind of want to repress it in our memories, just how contagious something can be and... and 
while RSV obviously isn't as dangerous as COVID, it's still as contagious and it can still make you sick. So we have to remember to be kind and courteous when we ourselves feel sick. Maybe don't go around other people, at least wear masks. I know I was talking with my friend today about wearing masks in public. It's it's normalized now. If you're sick, just wear a mask. I, I see people wearing masks at my school all the time and no one bats an eye. We're actually just grateful that you are wearing a mask and you're taking care to help others and not infect other people with whatever it might be, even just like a common cold, a small one day cold. If, if you're feeling sick, mask up, do your part, wash your hands, do all the little things that are important. Secondly, it is actually kind of scary to think that there is no treatment for RSV and this tags along with how contagious it is. Physicians have tried medications that open up the airways of the patient and even nebulizers that reduce the infection and that hasn't worked. Right now, all that is done to support people who end up in hospital is by giving these people who are babies and seniors and people with chronic conditions, they give them oxygen and fluids to support them through the infection progression until their immune system is strong enough to fight off the infection. This is just such a strong vouch for getting immunized because there actually isn't treatment for RSV. And I'm just thinking back to other portions of the interview. Uh, Dr. Dion mentioned it's so dangerous getting RSV. Well, maybe not so dangerous, but it's definitely inconvenient and it can be dangerous for older uh, seniors who get RSV because they have to lay in bed for 10 days at a hospital when it's severe and they do end up going to hospital because of RSV and muscular atrophy and just everything that's connected to a hospital visit. We, we talk about this so many times on the show, the interconnectedness of disease um, and how, it, how something can kind of make chronic disease worse, even if you don't have chronic disease and you're a senior, you, if you end up in hospital, as I just mentioned, muscle atrophy and for something that it's only 10 days of muscle atrophy, it may take a month or more to gain that muscle back. I'm not I'm not uh, a physio expert or anything. I'm not going to get technical on that, but I just know that colloquially or anecdotally, it, it, it's a lot easier to lose muscle than gain muscle. That's just what I've experienced, especially as a skinny guy myself. So um, just be careful. When th- there isn't treatment for this, It's super infectious, so both of those aspects point to the fact that you should get immunized. And finally, I thought that it was so enlightening how Dr. Dean was talking about who is the patient. Oftentimes, especially when the patient is a baby, the actual patient is the parent, and they are just so tired and gassed from taking care of their child or multiple children who have RSV and obviously can be multiple children from how contagious it is in the household. So chances are, if one of your child gets it, all of your children are gonna get it. And if every single, if you have a big family, that could be absolutely exhausting. So again, this, well, not again, this is, but this is just an absolute testament to all the caretakers out there who work so hard to be the support of whoever in their life is sick. If you have an amazing support system like the people Dr. Dean uh, was talking about, make sure you thank them and let them know that they're appreciated in your life. And it, it goes without saying that people who who take care of the sick are, are just absolutely incredible. From healthcare practitioners, from sons and daughters taking care of their parents to the other way around, parents taking care of their kids. We, we, we can't forget how important social support systems are in times of need especially in times of health need when when your health isn't up to par so don't overlook that in your life be grateful for the support system if that you have there, there are times when you may not have one so i think just being grateful um in in, in when you have that we often when we have that that think that thought in our heads when we're sick we always think the and it's kind of funny uh, i've spoken to people about it you always think why don't why don't i why am i not more grateful when i'm not sick why why uh, do i take it for granted and this is a similar thing why do we take the people who take care of us 
for granted. So always be grateful for your support system and, and just give them a thank you. Okay, well, a reminder to stop by Alberta Lung's website at www.ablung.ca to purchase your holiday seal cards today. You still have a bit of time to have the cards delivered before Christmas Day, and I know that any special person in your life would love to get a Christmas card that not only comes from you, but it benefits Albertans as well. Okay, well, that will do it for our December episode. As we dive headfirst into the holidays, I wish you season's greetings, Merry Christmas, and joy in any way you celebrate this amazing time of year. I hope you spend time with friends and family and always take care of your health. As always, just remember to breathe.